0: I thought I'd never see.
1: And then one day. I think you want to see this. Coming, out of a series of coming in from all around the tribe. So it.
2: Welcome to the FDH Lounge Highlight Reel. From the team that brought you the FDH Lounge and the fancy Draft Help Insider, deliver to you the next evolution in new media excellence.
1: Doesn't it make sense that we would stay here and have possibly the time of your life? The FDH
3: Lounge Highlight Reel. What
1: What would you say you do here?
3: The Great American Radio Show on Internet TV, where nothing is off topic. Pay at- I say, pay attention! The following excerpts are organized by theme, subject matter, or gravitas.
4: Was that really necessary?
1: There's never a shortage of variety, entertainment, or pertinent content. You'll know it's just a show, right?
4: Best show in the world.
1: This compilation is reflective of over 150 episodes of unique and entertaining programming. All right, what do you
0: say? We're online and ready.
2: And now, for your consideration, the highlight reel.
0: Wow.
5: I know, right?
2: Episode 131, Bob Barker. For a lot of the people that just kind of speak uh, kind of vaguely about things that were done to the dogs or whatever, I mean, the, the, the actual record, and, and you, you picked up on me using the word horrific, the actual record of what happened with the dogs, the electrocutions, the beatings, everything that went along with that, uh, it's one of these things where I don't think he would have the degree of popularity that he's been able to regain uh, if these things
6: were known to more people. Well, I think that, uh, in a way, uh, he uh, the only thing positive that came out of this, whole uh, just uh, reprehensible situation is that dog fighting was all over the newspapers and on television for a while and uh, dog fighting it, it, well, there's probably some dog fighting in every state in the union some states have more of it than others but but dog fighting is rampant and uh, it is illegal in many states states of course and he brought this to the to the public's attention and i understand that uh, enforcement agencies received more tips on dogfighting after the michael dick uh, 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 tragedy than uh, they had ever had before and also made more arrests and there have been more fines and more imprisonments than ever before so uh, it worked in a, in, a, in a positive way in, in in that uh, regard, but what he did and what all dog fighters do to these dogs is just terrible. And uh, the poor, cre- the, the, many of them, they can't even place them in homes because they're they're absolutely destroyed mentally. And uh, people who enjoy dog fighting, I just cannot understand. I cannot un- understand them, nor do I want to or be associated with them in any way. Episode
2: 127, New York Post college football and basketball columnist Len Robbins. They had been threatening last year uh, to, to make it 96 teams in there, and uh, I have the very cynical point of view, uh, Len, that they, they floated that out there. It, it got massive outrage, and I had the sense it was a deliberate trial balloon so that when you go from 65 to 68, everybody says, Oh, thank God, it's not a massive change here. Did, did you have any similar Cynical thoughts about that when when the ultimate
7: uh parameters came down oh, wow you you're a grassy knoll guy huh you're a conspiracy <laughs> guy huh I like that um you know I, I didn't I didn't look at it quite like that um, I, I was I was surprised because I think that there was a tremendous amount of money to be gained um if they had gone to you know an even bigger format um now, having said that, nobody ever explained to me why they felt the need to even fix something that, to get, wasn't broken. It was, it was brilliant. I mean, you know, to me, it's the best sporting event of the year. Um, so, you know, if if they were thinking, you know, well, let's, you know, let's, it's like negotiations, right? I want seven years at, you know, ten million dollars, and what's the real number? I, you know, I wouldn't put it past anyone. These are great business people, you know, um, but. To me, at the end of the day, the, the only argument that, that I heard that got me to sway a little to expanding the field, you know, Jimmy Beheim was just saying, look, you know, we, we talk about it being a game for the kids. Why not have more kids involved in the tournament? And I didn't have an answer for that.
2: Episode 133: Super Bowl Preview with Queens Chronicle columnist Lloyd Carroll.
7: I understand
2: Pittsburgh, and I always say Milwaukee slash Green Bay, because realistically, okay, that's that's an adjunct of the Milwaukee market. Of course, yeah. absolutely. Taken together, still pretty small. So I get your point. But these are national brands, when you're talking about the Packers and, and believe me, I'm a Browns fan as much as it pains me to say that about the Steelers undeniably they are a major national brand. Mm-hmm. They've both won Super Bowls in the last 15 years so that you, you, you've got that going for them. There, there's a specialness to it there that, that's going to grip the casual fan. I understand what you're saying about That's it.
0: what You just kind of hit the point. Yeah. I mean look I'm not questioning the whole NFL heritage. God bless the late Vince Lombardi. I get that. Ron Ross is boom I'm talking about the marginal fans, big markets sell. I mean, if you're Fox, if you put yourself in David Hill's position, and you're 60 minutes away from having New York and Chicago, the league's two biggest markets, meeting in the big game with all that advertising, with all the hype and hoopla. You, these networks know they're really going to get big ratings no matter what for a Super Bowl. We know that, but it becomes a game will it be the most watched ever? I mean, that has a certain cachet that every network wants. Don't forget, Fox also wants a spring board their spring programming from this. There's a lot riding here uh, that brings that the marginals make a big difference. And that the, I, I think that the media's kind of looked the other way. They buried this. But I, I, I had to bring it up. And of course, everyone's going to deny it and a little sing kumbaya hold hands for the Pittsburgh and Green Bay. But that's a reality that everybody's just hiding from. Episode
2: 143, Those Damn Hipsters with Kyle Ross.
8: you got to check out Yuck. You want to talk about the album of the year? Yuck. Yuck. By Yuck. Yuck. Yes. There's the official recommendation, the hipster wow. album of the year. We're 25% of the way into the year, and I don't know if you're going to have a better album than Yuck. By Yuck. Right. Yuck. I'm going to look that up. If, if you you're out like there listening, it, Yuck by Yuck. Here's a hipster Someone post that on my too, Facebook Keep it wall. going. Yeah. If you love Dinosaur Jr., then you'll love Yuck.
2: <laughs> I know you love Dinosaur Jr. I do so love yeah.
8: Dinosaur Jr. Yes. It, uh Oh, I hate dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Great show. Dinosaurs are stupid. Here's, here's I a a, a, I, I not the mama. Great show. Oh, I'm not talking about the show. I'm talking about the I, species. I, I love the show. Oh, they were I, stupid. They got extinct. I love There's the show. species that were too stupid yeah. to realize that when it's warm, you walk somewhere where it's cold, and
2: vice versa. I love it. Yeah. No interest in babies. That's I, why they all turned into I, birds. I love the show. the species. Park. Yeah, I love them both, but uh, <laughs> I, I I do. I do. Yeah, the show, the speech, anything dinosaurs is going oh, to okay. Yeah.
8: You also have Jim Lando's raped as your 15th greatest pro wrestler of all time. <laughs> and, and you're I mean, wearing 3D My Bloody Valentine's glasses. I don't know if that's hipster or if that's curmudgeon or what that is. What? What? Th- th- that's too. Low What's to curmudgeon? Have on that? That's like your bitter old man. That's the guy who, like you know, like some of these old guys that, you know, like all oh, this Triple H, he doesn't even deserve to be in the top 50 or something. Oh, that's like, get, get off my, my lawn! Yeah, yeah. yeah, back in my day. Back in my day. Just, hey, wrestlers were yeah. wrestlers.
2: Episode 149, Comedian Pat Cooper. That's got to be one of the most important lessons that you can impart in a book like this, is, is not to let anybody take away your dignity and your self-respect. And you indicated, I, I understand that happened on a couple of different uh, occasions with a couple of different folks that you were uh, opening up for. Uh, what happened with Sinatra, I understand did happen some other times here of, of somebody trying to mold you or shape you. I worked, I worked with Paul
1: Anker. Twenty eight days, fifty six shows. He never said a word to me. He never, he never said that I would. We know that I was in a show. He never met me. they passed me by. Never say good evening. So on the fifty six show, his last show, he was doing his last song. I walked on the stage and I says, "Paul, I don't want to upset your day, it's your 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 evening. My name is Pat Cooper. I just finished fifty six shows." And I'm alive, and I'm, in, and I'm in front of you, and you've got some damn nerve not, not, not to recognize me. At least as a human being. He didn't know what to say. He stood at me. He didn't know. He said, you're not going to work with me no more. I said, fine. Six months later, I worked with him in Boston. And then over there, he tried to conquer me and try to make me do things I refused to do. I said, you're not paying me, number one. And number two, I'm not going to mop up after you. You're out of your mind. Are you nuts? Well, Who are you? Are you God? I mean, do I have to, and people say, "Well, you, you know, you built, you know, you you're, you're bridges." I says, "Yes, but I paid the toll." Episode one
2: fifty two. Pro wrestler Road Warrior Animal Joe Laurinaitis. Obviously, you talk about that in the book. It's it's the first thing that you mentioned uh, towards the beginning of the book, talking about that night and everything that led up to it. Was there a sense in your minds, in addition to we've gone up to New York, we've won the belts in the biggest place? Was there also a sense of, in your mind, we've just done something nobody else is ever going to duplicate because the business is different now?
5: Well, you know, um, Paul Ellering told that to us as, as we were going out to the ring. He goes, you know, you guys realize no other tank team has won all three major championships. And we just go, hmm, really? I said, I never really thought about it. And, you know, once we did, I mean, it was actually a thrill. And, and, and you know, even though the, work is, the business is a work, It was a thrill to win those titles, to be trusted by the biggest promotion in the business at that time, and still is, that we can carry the load as a tag team that represents the company. And that was the main thing. we we just wanted that kind of respect from the boss.
2: Episode 138 Longtime major league pitching coach Rick Peterson. I'd always kind of had the thought whenever people whine about why do these pitchers have pitch counts I'd always said look that's something where you'd have to have a complete retraining on youth pitching because this is the way they've come up through the system. Arms have been protected and I I kind of thought that maybe uh, if it started at the youth level that there might be a way to have pitchers maybe go back to four game rotations at the major league level or possibly do it a little bit more like how it used to be done, but I, I'm rethinking that after reading some of your tweets here, that uh, that they've established that too many innings are dangerous, and that uh, even if they wanted to try to change the
9: parameters at the youth level, it seems like it wouldn't be a very good idea. Well, I mean, one of the data that comes out of Dr. Andrew's research and Dr. Fleissick's research, research once again, is that amateur pitchers that pitch over 100 innings, you know, and that, that would be a chunk over 100. The research of, of those guys, or the the impact of, of those guys actually being injured, those pitchers being injured, is incredibly high, incredibly, incredibly high. One of the biggest factors at the amateur level, with the risk of injury, more than anything else, is the fact that kids now are pitching all year round. They need to take time off. You need to take two, three, four, four months off in the off season, and that that's what you know. That, that's that's what's lacking in, in today's in today's game, and. You know, and again, you know, going back in the day. I mean, I don't know how far you can go back, but you know, we're constantly sending out some great stuff, and you can always contact us through through Facebook or Twitter on Rick Peterson Three P. Um, you know, we're we're really trying to do the best we can through Dr. Andrews' research and, and teaming up with Dr. Andrews and Tommy Glavin and Al Leiter and Jim Duquette. You know, to mention some of the guys on our on our team to to really make an impact to drive these injuries down, and that that's really what it's all about, allowing healthy pitchers as Stay healthy and really enjoy the game at a high level.
2: Episode 139, Pro Wrestling and MMA Journalist Dave Meltzer. Is there the sense, again, for a country that prizes order as much as they do, that going back to these shows uh, might be seen culturally as a way of sort of pressing on through everything that that has happened here and that it might be regarded as kind of a a healing balm to go out and kind of live life as, as one normally would have, at least for one night?
0: I think so. I think there's something to that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember wrestling was a big part of the healing of the country after World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean that's that's where the, the cultural um, strength of professional wrestling there is, you know, built around you know the Japanese society and Ricky Dozan beating the big Americans, and it really, you know, it's really it was very unique how that industry developed there. It's very different from everywhere else, and um, you know, and the industry in Japan had its peak, um, you know, where we're we talking about in the fifties and even even into um, the nineties um was for the most part much bigger than it ever was in this country with possibly the exception of that 1998 to 2000 1997 to 2001 period where wrestling really was big but you know when i was over there it was just, just you know the when you're just around it it's, it was so much bigger than in the United States. I would tell people like you know they go, oh yeah, you know like Antonio Noki's like Hulk Hogan. I go, no, he's like Muhammad Ali. It's a different level than Hulk Hogan, but you know people just kind of see like Hulk Hogan being the ultimate or oh, it's like WWE and it's like no, no no, 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 it's like in real society like you know, um, you know I mean you know you walk down the street and you see billboards with wrestlers on them, you know everywhere you go. I mean I mean, not now I would but, but I mean I'm talking about in its, in its glory days.
2: Episode 141, Longtime Survivor Frontman Jimmy Jamison. If you're sitting there thinking, I'd like to create something in this sound. I like to tap into what people think of when they think of that time period. What are some of the things you do to try to make it happen? Because you had the vision, and very clearly it worked. Because that's what I was hearing, and I think other people are hearing when they listen to the CD. How do you get from point A to point B,
0: and and really summon up that 80 sound? You know, it really. Uh, it wasn't really a, that, that that sound was our sound you know and so it, it really came
5: natural it's a big snare drum you know loud big snare to, to hear, this, hear the drums and, the, and that vocal out front and some heavy guitars and
0: you know it's it pretty much uh, we didn't really have to think about it at all we just did what we do and I think if we had to do some other kind of uh, era's music we'd have to rethink that even more so than the 80's stuff because the 80's stuff was that's that's it. Just came right out of us, you know. it's just an automatic." And if we had to do a '60s sound, it'd be a little bit different, you know. It'd be more psychedelic or whatever you call it, you know. But it, whatever the '60s sound was in the
5: '70s and the '90s, and then for present day, that's when it that's when it would be hard to get from point A to point B. But on the '80s sound,
0: it was. It just we just did what we do, and it. Episode
2: 138, legendary boxing journalists Burt Randolph Sugar and Teddy Atlas.
0: The drop-off of boxing overall, can, in some ways, can be attached to the drop-off in the interest and the significance of the
2: heavyweight champions. No, that's very well said. Personally, I don't think that's a very healthy development. I'm kind of an, an elitist when I look at this. I, I like my champions, all things being equal, to be kind of epic, so it's, it's disappointing to me when it's not the case. Uh, Bert, uh, let me ask you your thoughts on that as well, and I'll I'll mention that when we had Teddy on in the fall, we talked about briefly with him the fact that the last real transcendent heavyweight title fight I think that we had was probably... Lewis and Tyson back in uh, June of '02. This has got to be, if not the longest drought in the modern history of sports, one of the longest ones. I mean, there there can't be but one or two droughts longer than this of not having an epic heavyweight title fight like this. Uh, you know, again, uh, Bert, we've come a long way from the fight of the century, and, uh, and not in a good direction, it seems.
4: Well, what happens, uh, Rick is. First of all, Americans love big things. We love big bank accounts. We love big cars. We love big chested women. We love big fighters. And when they're not American, it loses something to us. It's happened before sometimes when the heavyweight champion is not exciting or is not fighting fighters who are not even household names in their own households like Larry Holmes, an underappreciated champion, but he's fighting Osvaldo Ocasio and Leroy Jones. We look to the middle area weight classes and we find satisfaction in a Leonard and a Hearns fight or a, a Hagler and a Hearns uh, fight. But we don't even have that anymore because Mayweather and Pacquiao seems never to be made. But the heavyweight division has been ours. And we, I remember Ring Magazine in the old days, they had a ring record book. And it used to have a little box that said, heavyweight champions who weren't American, and on to go Tommy Burns, Canada, Primo Canary, Italy, etc. Mario Hansen, Sweden. Well, now you can put a box in say that says heavyweight champions that are American, and it's we've lost interest in the heavyweight or big men uh, events. And maybe that's why when two undefeated as they were, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali climbed in the ring as the first men to break the million-dollar Pay barrier, both getting 2.5 million that night in 1971. It was a singular event, and Teddy used the word correctly, that really transfixed our attention. Hardcore boxing fans and peripheral boxing fans, the casual ones alike, because it meant so much to so many different people on so many different levels. And it was not only a sellout at Madison Square Garden. And the mobs that were around it, I mean, you had to see what an event can do. They had to close off bridges because there were so many cars coming into New York. They couldn't clear the streets around the garden. Ali and Fraser were not allowed after the weigh-in that afternoon to go back to their hotels. They had to stay in the arena. Fraser went to sleep. Ali counted all the seats in the house. The cars, the limousines lined up from 33rd Street were Madison Square Garden is, all the way up to 110th Street to disgorge their elite passengers. Frank Sinatra is taking pictures for Life magazine. Burt Lancaster is doing the closed circuitry. Diana Ross, all of them are in the audience, all the big stars. And you look up at the third balcony, and there's the former Vice President of the United States, Hubert Humphrey, obviously didn't get a better ticket. This was a place to be. And you really can't say that about a lot of events, no matter what they are, sports or otherwise.
1: Welcome back to the FDH Lounge. It's interesting. Field you know, compression fractures in our L1 and L2 vertebral lateral condyle and lower Covered in a fine dust of particulate matter. I ran the DNA. Brain tissue on the fragments means they're from a frontal bone composed of silica, sulfur compounds, and synthetic rubber. I've also noted a constellation of identical nanometric variants. We make learning fun.
3: Flandy's, 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 dancing Flandy's, dancing Flandes. And now, your FDH dignitaries.
2: <laughs> Episode 143, former Minnesota governor, pro wrestler, and wrestling and football announcer Jesse Ventura. Jesse, I, I gotta tell you, as, as somebody who looks at this and I'm, I'm a self-admitted political nerd, at first blush you strike me as being a pretty good amount to the left of Ron Paul. Do you think you'd be that compatible with him?
0: Well, we differ, we differ, on, the, uh, we differ on the abortion issue, naturally. He's pro-life. I'm pro-choice, but that's just one thing. But on many issues, well, let's take why I dedicated this book to him, if you look at the dedication. And I did that because he was the only one that stood out on the congressional floor and made the statement that WikiLeaks hasn't with the
2: Jesse, I'd be interested in knowing if, if any differences are limited to the social issues or perhaps go beyond, because again, and this is just at first blush looking at things on the surface, are, are, are do you really subscribe to his notion of what would be a radically downsized federal government in terms of spending programs and the like? Are, are you are you good
0: with Ron Paul and that kind of stuff? I'm uh, pretty solidly with him on that. Okay. You know, the, the federal government, first of all, um, if you look at our forefathers, they Close every base we have outside of the United States of America, and I would bring all our men and women home. What about
2: entitlements? I mean, Ron Paul would definitely like to go after those. Are you with him on that? Watching the movie, the different things here with the Val Kilmer character and with the police, it almost, I, I'm not going to say that there's a, there was necessarily a b- 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 amusement, but a thing of like, hey, Danny boy, try not to kill any civilians while you guys are blowing each other up. I mean, you had the ATF in Cleveland in the summer of 76. It seemed like the feds were taking it seriously. Me as a neophyte, I don't know anything about law enforcement, but I'm sitting here going, how the hell do you have the same cast of characters successfully and unsuccessfully blowing one another up over a period of time. I mean, is there not probable cause to have gotten the net out, and gotten a lot of these guys in off of the streets. And uh, I understand that the the local police are figuring, okay, maybe they're just killing each other. But what was the thought process on that with local law enforcement? The ATF was taking it seriously, and I'm not going to indict the local police by saying they weren't. But what can you tell us about the mindset and the mentality that somehow or another allowed this stuff to go on and allowed these bombings to play out as long as they did? Well...
1: I don't think that any of the government officials on the FBI or the police force ever allowed, you know, bombings to happen. It was just—it sure. was a way of 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 major intimidation during that time period, where basically Cleveland was dubbed Bomb City USA because of the way bombs were used in Cleveland in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. But the, I mean. There are a lot, which you're going to see. I actually have exclusive photos of these bombs that were reconstructed and pictures of the actual crime seen in the documentary, and we talk about what the bombs mean, their language of you know, what it is to it, uh, intimidate. And so a lot of these bombs sometimes they didn't even understand how to detonate them correctly, where you had bombs that had some of them gone off, literally the whole block of Waterloo would have gone up when Danny Green's house got blown up. But they didn't know how to correctly detonate the bomb. So I think that a lot of them, you know, they were anxious to try to get Danny Green, but they never really knew how to get him murdered. And so when you have all these cops that are involved, they want to catch you and they want to put you away so the streets are safer for the communities and everyone can take a breathe of fresh air, you know? And, And now all of a sudden, You had this way of intimidating, you know, jury members. You had, you know, people stop, you know, using, you know, the witness protection probe because they were so intimidating and they just didn't want to deal with it. So they just, you know, either fled the area or just was quiet after they had a bomb go off near them. They were scared. So it's a very intimidating way. But I think the police force did a great job. And the FBI did a great job of coming to its fruition, solving all these murders, and indicting the right people. Granted, you had a lot—I mean, James Willis is one of the best attorneys in the history of law, and one of the Cleveland's finest attorneys, and he got a lot of these guys acquitted for some of their trials. And he's one of the smartest men I've ever interviewed in my life, and it's just amazing to see— and hear him talk, especially in the documentary. He's, I mean, he's so eloquent that you could see how he got a lot of these guys off and, they were, and acquitted because there were errors in some of the chain of title reports that the government had. And then when you have one little crack in a, in a case, they're going to find it. They're going to figure out a way to get this around us too. Stop the case from going forward, and it's just truly remarkable of what happened during that time period in Cleveland. Period, because it's just an unbelievable. but Yes, it did. It did happen, and it really is believable. But you think it could never happen? Episode one forty two. Rat drummer and
2: author Bobby Blotzer. After making the jokes about him in the OJ clubs and everything like that, coming face to face with him on a public course out there in SoCal, that was one of the better stories in the book too. Well,
5: I'll tell you, man. I. <laughs> It's just weird to hear you ask about O.J. because I just finished that book. Uh, I did it by O.J. And, um, wow, you know, I just – and I was just telling somebody else that story. The guy is actually that – I have a line of wine coming out, and I was telling these guys the story about when I was golfing with him. And – or or not golfing with him, but uh, using the O.J. club, which you remember in the book. But, um, you know – That was the oddest thing, I think, that I've ever experienced. Next to me standing on stage 10 feet from Mick Jagger when the Stones were playing and no one else was there. I was thinking, how is it possible that I am the only one up here? You know, and Nick is looking over like, who is that creepy guy over there? Because at the time I had a long black trench coat on, I had a beard. I'm just standing with a beard. The only one that was up on stage other than me were people that were working and doing things. I was, you know, I lasted about 10 minutes and then they kicked me off. But when I ran into this OJ thing, I couldn't, it was right after the trial. And I just thought, out of all the people in the world, I'm standing next to this cat, you know. And it was, it was weird, man. It makes me weird to even think about it and talk about, it, especially after just reading that book.
2: Episode 136 Analysis of FDH Lounge Worst President Ever Balloting to Celebrate President's Day. Guys, you can each uh, take it away here. I'll start with you, Tim. Thoughts on Jimmy Carter getting voted our FDH Lounge Worst President of All Time?
9: No brainer. Uh, oil situation, inflation, hostage crisis. I mean, it, the guy just—he just wasn't prepared to be president. I mean, yeah. actually reminds me a lot of the guy today that we have, just in over his head.
2: And looking at Iran, we're we're living with the ramifications even today. That's why he got my first place vote. Uh, Nate, some uh, some thoughts here before we wrap this. Get you know what you guys said. I mean, he was a way over his
1: head. And that's why I point to Nixon. We're still living with ramifications of Carter 30 years later. And, you know, that should not be the case, that you're living with dire ramifications
0: uh, 30 years out from when a guy was in office.
1: Episode 135,
2: seventh-inning slouch analysis of the Albert Pujols contract situation. In terms of his persona and in terms of what's really going on behind the scenes, there's a disconnect that I find to be disingenuous. And I, and I say that as somebody who's always respected yeah. the guy, no. and I see the way the game is being played right now. And, and, and I think that's fair, and I think we actually might
8: be saying the same thing. Okay. Like, like, I'm yeah. saying, like, the contract demand itself, right. let's set that aside for right. a second, but the – you know the ultimate—I don't want to say ultimatum—but the deadline and all that kind of stuff, and, and, and the leaks and all that stuff. Yeah, I—I I, I, I don't have a problem with it. I just don't.
2: I hadn't heard about not waiving the no trade, but it does. You know, yeah. honestly, if I were the
1: Cardinals. That's what I was going to bring up. Yeah. But that was that's what makes it evil. You know, the whole point of I won't be traded this season. You know, what if you're ten games back in the middle of the season and now the Cardinals aren't going to get anything for you when they can trade you off to the Yankees or Red Sox or the Cubs and get some decent prospects or something? That's what makes it evil. This whole statement of you won't trade me no matter what. You know, that's that's ridiculous. Episode one
2: forty three. Legendary pro wrestler Brett Hitman Hart. A thought popped into my
8: head. With your father Stu's background being such a legendary shooter, had MMA been in its uh, the level that it is today, might we be talking about former UFC middleweight champion Bret Hart instead of five-time WWE champion? Could that have been a possibility at the time?
5: Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I you know, I think um, just the whole sort of uh, gladiator kind of mentality that goes with MMA, as opposed to the sort of uh, pretend sort of pro wrestling uh, world I'm just so, I'm always much happier and grateful that I was in a, in a profession where we only pretended to hurt each other it's really uh, you know found in one of my buddies brains and punches face in and all that I just you know I have a lot of respect for MMA especially the uh, submission wrestlers and I, I love uh, you know GSP and I have a lot of a lot of my favorites in it and I admire him, even Brock Lesnar I I Have a lot of respect for him, but I'm just glad that uh, that I never got never uh, got weeded into that. To make it look, uh, just you know, just
2: doesn't appeal to me. Uh, just on an ethical level. Episode one thirty one. Sports travel expert Gary Herman. Another one of my favorite stories. Again, the the Winter Classic in Pittsburgh. How how great oh. is that? You guys are there. think it's bumped back from one o'clock to eight o'clock at night due to the rain. Everything. Oh, gotta yeah. go somewhere. Gotta go. Gotta go watch something. Hey, Youngstown State's playing down the road. I mean, that that going to Youngstown State hoops game is just uh, you know to, to borrow the word from that weekend classic.
0: Well, we also had Cleveland State, but realistically, I looked at my my uh, BlackBerry and I was able to figure out the mileage and the, and, the, and the logistics of it. The game started at two o'clock there, and it was a longer ride. So Youngstown State made all the sense in the world. Thanks to our friend Manny Morales and, like I said, Mike Irv, for looking out for us. We were staying in Washington, PA, and by the time we found out, it was too late to cancel the moon, so I had to drive a little extra. But we do whatever it takes. That's what royalty's all about. Episode
2: 136, USA Today sports columnist Michael McCarthy. I remember a couple of years ago, Jim Calhoun got accosted by some grandstanding pinko at a press conference there. How do you feel about taking money out of the mouths of women and orphans? Once in a blue moon, they do get put on the defensive about it, Michael. It doesn't happen too much, though. (laughs) right.
6: Yeah, they, they, they do
5: get to uh, put on defensive
6: about it, and, you know, I've interviewed college coaches about it, and I've interviewed their agents about it, and they always give the same thing, you know, the same answer. It's a free market. Yeah. You know, we're getting paid what the free market says we should get paid. Uh, you know, if the free market says, you know, we were getting paid two hundred grand. or
2: Producer Steve Cervillo, you were quoted as saying his brain is missing and presumed dead. Do you want to give any context to that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, Charlie Sheen, it's weird when you, when you go into the controlled chaos of his house, let me tell you. I mean, at first you're thinking, this is crazy, that none of this makes sense, and how does somebody live like this? spent four hours with the guy, and at the very end of my conversation with him, to be honest, I felt like Charlie Sheen is 100% sane, 100% sober. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's talking about. This is not somebody who's gone off the deep end. This is not somebody who uh, is on drugs. I mean, yes, he has admitted to doing drugs, and I think that's part of the reason he acts like he acts now, but let me tell you something, this guy is sober, and he's articulate, he's focused, he knows exactly what he's saying, uh, especially in these answers to, to an interview question, so it's really weird. I mean, the changing from walking to his house and thinking, wow, this is not what I'm used to, and then leaving after talking to him for that long,
2: it, it's it's so night and day, I can't even describe to you. Episode 140, actor Dominic Chianese. I'd like to ask you, because I have a feeling your answer is going to be a little bit different. When we had on Ziggy cartoonist Tom Wilson on the show... We're tired about characters. He's fascinated by the Ziggy character and characters in general, and he spoke in such glowing terms uh, of the Ziggy character that he actually inherited from his father and has done some things with here. I imagine for somebody like you, it's got to be a little bit more nuanced with the character that you embodied all that time. I'm sure you can see the good side and some of the things with Uncle Junior and some of the things that he did, but I imagine it's, it's got to be a much more nuanced view to inhabit a
3: character like that, Correct. You have to. Uh, every actor, if, he's, uh, if he or she is considering himself an artist, must bring something of themselves into the role. You know, you use you use your own images. And a, uh, a, a character like Uncle Junior, being from New Jersey, not that far from a guy from the Bronx, as far as the speech patterns and things like that. So you you do use you do use your own experience. And uh, I found a role that I could really identify with, as far as that goes. I'm the right age. He was Italian descent, actually Neapolitan. You know, David made all the uh, the Sopranos Neapolitans. That's why they lived. That's why they came from Avellino. And that's important too. David himself is a Neapolitan. We use Neapolitan words, things that that I could identify and bring some of myself into the situation of the character. But the actual the development of the theory itself comes, uh, it's very, very much uh, involved with the Stanislavsky system of acting, which is not a formula for great acting, but it is. It is a, a, a um, I hate to use the word method because 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 the method is different to everybody, but the, there is a, an approach to acting that Stanislavsky, the great Russian director back in 1920s, <laughs> knew that actors must practice in order to, to, to bring something to the role that was very, very believable. And it's really the Stanislavski system, it's a system, it's an approach to acting. He died before he, fin- he finished the whole program, but he also knew that talent can be, can be originated in a person. Can not originate if you have the talent already, talent can be enforced and grow if you follow certain patterns of behavior, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of applying images from your own personal history. You see, so but that's a talent. You have to have the talent, just like a piano player. But the piano player must rehearse before he can do play Mozart and Beethoven. So but you have to have the right technique. And that technique takes a lot of practice. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh,
2: this is amazing stuff, uh, certainly, uh, Dominic. Last question we got for you here, just to follow up on what you were talking about, I'm curious, again, for those of us that have never seen the process uh, from the inside, to what extent, a- a- as you're speaking with uh, David Chase or somebody else involved like this, any of the other writers, to what extent are you participating in the development of the character and possibly giving your input as to, gee, maybe, do you suppose he might do this
3: in this situation? How does the evolution I'd say, of a character I, I would go? say it's a 50-50 proposition. What happens is that they write the material and you interpret it. But when you bring something that you you know is right for the character, they get very excited and they write even more for you because they realize you know the character. By that time, you know the character and they listen to you and they hear you and they hear the voice. And uh, I honestly can say that uh, Uncle Junior was. was really a highlight because I, I could I could bring something of myself into it that made the character interesting made him three-dimensional made him real and made him believable so that's the job you make it believable when you can bring bring something to the character that that uh, is uh, that fits the circumstances of the play it's really a play Shakespeare said it the play's a thing so without the writers you don't have it you can be the greatest actor in the world if you get lousy material. You, there's only a certain amount of impact you're going to have. But when you get great writing, like Shakespeare, there are many Shakespeare plays, and you bring and you bring your talent to that, then you got the audience in the palm of your hand, and they'll believe everything you say, and they'll react accordingly.
8: During any of the FDH Lounge commercial
1: breaks, we recommend that you not wander too far. After all, you could miss something. Survivors clawed through rubble, searching for any sign of the familiar.
2: They have no one that can guard him. Ideal situation for Jimmy Clawson. It may not be the best place in terms of his pocketbook. Yep. And when you do that as a player, then your other teammates respect
3: you.
5: Probably the only black man on a big dog in Canoga, South Dakota.
8: Oh, Tyler. All right, now we talked about the inside of the chicken. Let's talk about the crust. The
2: only way to go all right, when you're making fried chicken is a situation where you double dip it. All right, so in this container, we're going to add some buttermilk and some hot sauce.
1: Get a little stir. Uh huh. We're we're back. Okay. Okay. And now back to the FDH Lounge.
2: Episode 133, Fox Business Network host Liz Clayman. We've gotten really good feedback the previous times you've been on the show. I mean, our our target audience, I think, basically more or less is uh, younger to, to middle-aged males, and yet everybody seems to feel like they can relate really well to you, and I think it's because, again, you, you may define yourself as a feminist, but you're not dogmatic about it. no, no We, no, we no, were no. joking dy- about the last no, time I you were on here about been. the thing with Geraldo and the pajamas. We were laughing about that <laughs> a little bit. I, I, I right. like that the, the pieces that I've read about you, when you get asked about wardrobe stuff, you don't go into this whiny crap of don't objectify me you know you answer the question straightforwardly i think that's what people like and can relate to uh, about this is just the way that you deal with stuff
1: yeah i'm a guy's gal you know i'm outside really am i like to sit around and play football and i can go toe-to-toe with anybody and i, ne- I it, it takes a lot to offend me it really does and i think that that people need to they need to calm down and they need to have humor They need to act and understand that nobody's out, hopefully, to really offend anybody. Wardrobe, who cares? Uh, Yeah, I mean, let's show a little cleavage. This ain't radio for television. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Who cares? I just love what I do, but I truly do feel, and I wish this is a little Pollyanna-ish, but I, I wish people were just judged on their abilities.